Welcome to Move by Grace, the podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio. Well, good morning, everyone. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Revelation chapter 19. We are getting so close to the end of this book. Revelation 19, and we are going to be looking at verses 11 through uh, 21 today. We're going to finish chapter 19. Well, this week, as I prepared for the, uh, the message uh, in my devotional time, I was just listening to, I, I enjoyed listening to a few other pastors. I enjoy hearing how they preach and, and, and maybe even catching some of their mannerisms and and. And this week, uh, one of the men that I was listening to, he he made a a true, very true statement concerning us as a people and um, something I didn't quite realize. But as I started to listen and watch uh, maybe some television or Netflix, I began to see it. And, and, you know, because we've grown up in such a Judeo-Christian world, uh, things influenced by the Bible... We have taken on certain phrases and certain words, and even though the world may not know what they mean and know where they came from, uh, they come from the Bible, and, um, and it has this foundation in the Bible. So I, I thought we'll start the service out with a little top seven list of things that uh, people have said this week that I've heard, and maybe you've heard it too, and uh, maybe they may not even know what it means. So here's number seven. Uh, that thing needs to be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. I heard someone say that this week, and I was just kind of like, do you even know what that means? No. I said, pummeled, destroyed, nothing left. Look at it, turn to salt. The second one I heard, the number six, that was a flood of biblical proportions. Right? Well, not quite. Not quite. It was the whole earth. You mean you're a whole earth theorist? Yes. I need a Red Sea experience. You know, where God parts the waters and I can go safely through to the other side. I think some of you are probably thinking, yeah, with this whole pandemic, we need a Red Sea experience, Nate. Or what we need is a good shepherd. We need a good shepherd, right? They don't, they don't know what that means. We need a good shepherd. Or isn't he a good Samaritan? Like if I said good Samaritan, you're probably thinking about somebody right now. And they say that in the world. Isn't there a good Samaritan? They don't even know where that comes from. They don't even know the story. They don't, des- definitely don't know this, the prodigal. You ever heard that? Someone, there's a TV show now called The Prodigal Son. It's, it's, it's not the same as the story Jesus told. The prodigal returns. Look at the prodigal. Maybe at, you're at Thanksgiving this year, and someone in your house said, oh, if it isn't the prodigal son returning. If that happened, I'm sorry. But there's only the the number one word that people associate with that comes from the Bible, but they don't really quite fully understand what the word means. And it's only used one time. Do you realize this? One time in the Bible is the word that we're going to study today, Armageddon. I mean, we made movies about it. There was a meteor coming to destroy the earth, but thank the Lord for Bruce Willis, right? He saved us all. Armageddon. Like I said, only mentioned one time in the Bible. We're going to look at this event, guys, this event 
that we're looking at, the coming of Jesus. That's the title of our message, the coming of the king, the second coming of the king. We're going to look at this, and I want you to note a few things about the second coming of Jesus. 1,871 times in Scripture, it is mentioned concerning the coming of Jesus. 17 Old Testament books make reference to the second coming of Jesus. One out of every seven chapters in the New Testament make reference to the coming, second coming of Jesus. One out of every seven verses in the New Testament make reference to the second coming of Jesus. Jesus himself referred to this not like as in a passing thing to his disciples, oh, and by the way, I'm going to come again. Not in like half a dozen times, but Jesus referenced his second coming to set up his kingdom 21 times in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit chose five men to detail the specifics of Armageddon and the coming of Jesus. Those five men in the Bible were David, Isaiah, Joel, Zechariah, and obviously John. The second coming of Jesus, lastly, is second in the Bible only to one other thing, and that is faith. The second coming of Jesus, the second coming of our King, is very important. Everybody say very. 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 That's right. So uh, if if I could tell you this message in a sentence, what this passage is going to be about, here it is. The second coming of Jesus begins with the invitations for two suppers, the invitation for one battle, and it's a winner-take-all, and the crowning of one King of kings and Lord of lords. So let's read the text that we're going to look at uh, today, and then we're going to jump right into the text, and we're going to look at what are these feasts, who are these participants, what was the result, and then... More importantly, how, how should I live because of what I've learned here today? Okay, so let's read the text, beginning with verse 11. Then I saw, now, let me stop there. We didn't get very far, Nate. Yeah, circle that. Again, it's a change in scenery. John's seeing something brand new. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, With a loud voice, he called out to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, 
the flesh of the horses and their riders, the flesh of the men, both free and slaved, both small and great. And I saw the beast, and we know that's the Antichrist. We saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done signs by which deceiving those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all birds, all the birds were gorged with their flesh. All right, that's our text. So Father, we just need your help. Help us to understand it better as we go forward. Let's begin with this. Write this down. The feast of the Lord and, excuse me, in the second coming. The feast of the Lord in the second coming. Feast number one, the marriage feast of the Lamb. We talked about this last week, but I thought we would cycle back to verse 9 where it says, blessed, is he, blessed are those that are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the bride and the bridegroom. Their wedding has been complete, and many are invited to come, and we looked at who those were last week. And after this uh, last week, we learned that this feast is going to last for a thousand years. We also told you that feast that followed a wedding lasted for days in Israel based on the richness of the person who was providing the feast. The Father, our Father, hosts a feast for a thousand years. The bridegroom and the bride have been away for a week, and now we're back. Now the king has come to take his kingdom. So that's our first feast. Our second feast, we see in verse 17, and it kind of reminds me, look up here, it kind of reminds me of that uh, Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Birds. Is it, has anybody seen that with me? Right? And, and, and how he ends the movie, I hate to ruin it for you, because some of you are shaking your head no, but it just goes to black with this guy walking down the street and, the, and the, the street is covered with all these birds hanging up on the power lines just looking at him, right? It kind of reminds, this moment, this great supper of God kind of reminds me of that. If you look at verse 17, what's it say there? The angel called, standing in front of the sun with a loud voice to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Now, birds there is the Greek word carrion, which means Meat-eating birds, all right? So where's that, where's that leave us? Uh, that, that's uh, ravens, that's um, uh, vultures, all right? So we have these meat-eating birds circling overhead, the great supper of God. There is a vast difference between these two feasts, isn't there? I mean, let's look, let's compare and contrast, all right? I have a little slide for you on the screen here. We've got the Supper of God, and we've got the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. The Supper of God was grotesque. The Marriage Supper of the Lamb was beautiful. The Supper of God was for the birds. The Marriage Supper of the Lamb was for the bride, the lamb, and the honored guests. The, the Marriage Supper, uh, excuse me, the Supper of God was for those rebels that were killed and were eaten. And if you're kind of joining us right now in Revelation, you might be thinking, this is kind of like uh, 
This is a gross religion. Bear with me. The marriage supper of the Lamb was the church being honored for overcoming, for Christ being honored as the Lamb, and the invited guests for choosing to follow God. Those were the feasts. But the main point of this whole thing in the second coming is the battle that is about to, part, uh, to, to come about. So let's look at the participants in the battle of the second coming. Verse 11 says, Then I saw in heaven, excuse me, then I saw heaven open. Right? <coughs> this is where God is, and it opens. And what we see is a battle that is about to rage. Uh, we were talking out in the lobby. I guess there was a fight last night. Uh, there, was a, there, was a, there was a Mike Tyson, Roy Jones Jr. fight uh, back 30 years ago. I probably would have watched that fight. <laughs> but these guys are my age, and um, I wasn't going to do that. This was going to be an epic battle. So let's look at who's participating in this. Number one, the enemy is there. The text here tells us that the beast is there. We know the beast is the Antichrist. The one who claims to be God, who has everyone worshiping him. But the text also tells us that his, his little minion, the false prophet, is there. Now the false prophet, he, he gets everybody to worship the beast. And then it also says that the kings who followed him and our armies are there. The beast has already been in Jerusalem defending her. But Jerusalem will fall for the 47th time in its history. Do you know, 46 times the city of Jerusalem has fallen to an enemy. It will fall one more time. And it will fall. Well, the beast has already been set up there, but the scripture tells us in the Old Testament that the kings of the north will come against the beast and he'll defeat them. The kings of the south from Africa will come against the beast and he will defeat them. But then something happens. And we call it the sixth bowl. And in the sixth bowl, the Euphrates River dries up. And all the kings of the east make their way to Jerusalem to defeat the beast. And in the midst of that battle, the lamb interrupts the battle with his return. So we see that the enemy is there. But more importantly, and um, because I, men, because I love you here at Harvest, it's a good spot for an amen, all right? Wives, you can... You can get them ready. Get them ready. Wake them up. The second person that we're going to see is there is that the king is there. Amen? The king is coming. The king is there. This is a prize fight. And when he comes, church, church, look up here. All focus must be on him. All focus will be on him. It won't matter what's going on here. When he steps onto the horse and comes, all focus will be on him. This is the eternal one, worthy of all praise and glory and worship. He is the powerful one, more powerful than all of mankind. In the Old Testament, he was the theophany who showed us God. In the, in the uh, New Testament, or excuse me, in the Gospels, he was the Lamb of God in human form. In the epistles, he was the high priest in heaven on our behalf. In Revelations 1 through 3, he was the overseer of the church. And now he is the lamb who is worthy to judge the world. And all our focus for all time must be on Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the coming king. Notice his description. Notice what he wrote. We can't just skip over that. Then I saw heaven open and behold, what? 
a what? Somebody. A white horse. Thank you, Faith. A white horse. Now, to the original reader, that's important. To us, they're like, yeah, a white horse. Cool. Right? There are a few horse people in the room. They like white horses. To the original audience who read this would go, whoa. Because that meant this. When a Roman general won a battle, what he would do was that he would take the prisoners and they would follow behind him after, after the battle and he would mount a, right, a white horse and walk into the, the city of Rome riding his horse with the trophies, if you will, the captives following behind him. I want you to know when Jesus gets on the white horse before the battle, already proclaiming victory. Well, that, that, that seems kind of arrogant on his behalf. No, no, it is not. He's the winner before the battle is even, even fought. He is the king who created the world. He defeated the grave. He made for us a, uh, a kingdom in his father's house, and he is coming as the champion. Now note, the last time that we saw him in Jerusalem riding something, what was it? A donkey. Humility. On his way to the cross. This time, he comes on a white horse. Champion. It's quite the juxtaposition. A donkey and a stallion. A conqueror and a king. We see in Psalms 2, God had prophesied of this to come through David. He said, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. Now, I love what verse 4 says. What do you think God's response is to all these kings of the earth and the beast and all of these people saying, let's go away from God? What, what will be God's response? It says this, that he who sits in heaven laughs. It's one of two times recorded in the scripture that God laughed. The Lord holds them in derision, which means disdain. And he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I will tell the decree, the Lord said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now listen. Listen. Doesn't that just set your mind at ease? That, that we don't have to worry. Our king is coming. Our king is coming. And he's already won. God is in control. Now the question is, are you resting comfortably in that? That no matter what comes our way, in life or even death, our king is victorious. Notice what is on his head. The text says, the one sitting is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Now diadem isn't a word we use a lot right? A diadem is a crown. But there are two kinds of crowns mentioned in the New Testament. One is a stephanus, if I could just use Greek for a minute, and the other is a diadem. A stephanus is a leafy crown. 
And it would be given to an athlete who ran in the games and won the games, and he would be given a crown that he would wear. But this is a diadem. This is a kingly crown. Now note how many crowns are on his head. Many crowns. I think of the psalm writer who wrote, crown him with many crowns. This is kingly wear. Notice his eyes. We've already read it. His eyes were what? Like what? Fire. His eyes were like fire. Does that remind you of anyone? Revelation chapter 1, as he's walking amongst his church, purifying his church with his eyes of fire, seeing what they were doing and reporting to them what he sees. Now, now we've seen fire not for purification, but rather judgment. Hebrews tells us that our God is a consuming fire. Fire consumes and fire illuminates. Be reminded of that. That no one will be able to hide from him anymore. And what was he wearing? What was he wearing? A robe, very good, dipped in blood. (laughs) That doesn't sound very kingly, Pastor Nate. I mean, shouldn't he have like this cool silky robe on? Well, he's not ashamed to lead his kingdom into battle and defend and judge those who have come against it. But why was it dipped in blood? Well, I find it interesting that Isaiah 63 kind of tells us. Remember I said that there are a few uh, passages of Scripture that tell us exactly what this looks like when he comes? Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 3 are one of them. Instead of having you turn, though, I did put this passage of Scripture on the screen so you could follow along. And here's how this goes. Isaiah asks the question, who is this one? And then the Lord answers, okay? So here's verse 1. It says this, who is this one who comes from Eden? Now, Edom was just beyond the Mount of Olives. Who is this one who comes from Edom in crimson garments? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in his greatness of his strength. Now the Lord answers. It is I, speaking in righteousness and mighty to save. Isaiah says in verse 2, Why is your apparel red? Why are your garments like he who treads the winepress? And God answers, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garment and stained all my apparel. Whoa. Why is his garments dipped in blood? Because he has been about the judgment of God. Treading out. I mean, what do you do when you tread out grapes? We don't really do that around here, right? But back in those days, they, they would put, take their shoes off and just step in them. They would hike up their robe. But notice, his robe was dipped in blood because he was after it. Who is this? Do you know? It's Jesus. But don't take my word for it. Notice what his name was. Look at verse 11. He is called faithful and true. Where have we seen that before? If you've been following us all the way through Revelations, Revelation 3.14, he called himself the faithful and true witness. He's also called the word of God. Later on in the text, said that his robe was dipped in blood and his name was called the word of God. John called him the word of God in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Later on, he said in that same text, and uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. So Jesus has already identified himself as faithful and true in Revelation. John has identified him as the word of God. And note, he's also called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now listen, there can only be one. There can only be one King of Kings. There can be many kings, but there's only one King of Kings. And there can only be one Lord of Lords. Philippians 2 tells us that At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. And notice where that name is written. The placement is important. It's written on His robe and on His thigh. The thigh is the placement of the sword. Where the power was. But His vestments of battle were missing. He didn't need this piece of armor. There's one more name, though, we can't miss. We've got the faithful and true. We've got the Word of God. We've got the King of kings and Lord of lords, but there's one more we can't miss. But it's a mystery. Look at verse 12. His eyes were like, or excuse me, yeah, verse 12. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head were many diadems. And he had a name written that no one knows but himself. I had to think back about this to uh, remember, remember that strong man, Samson. Before Samson was ever born, his parents prayed for a child. And, and the pre-incarnate Christ appeared to them, telling them that they would have a child. And they began to worship him, and they asked the question, what is your name? And I don't know if you remember the response in Judges, but he said, my name is too wonderful for you to know. And here is a perfect example of that. John is able to see our king, yet his name is too indescribable. His name is ineffable majesty because John was not even permitted to know what it was or to describe it in mere words. This is our king who has a name that no one knows but him. And notice what he does. Notice what he does. His name is, verse 11, faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. Psalm 2, we've read that already, has told us that God has given him the nations to rule with an iron rod. In this text, it says the very same thing, that he will rule with a rod of iron. Now, the rod was the disciplinary stick in the shepherd's toolbox. And note, ours was not just a piece of wood. I'm here to tell you, my parents aren't here, but they would testify that many wooden spoons have been broken on my hind end, right? I'm thankful that they did not use rods of iron. He will rule with a rod of iron, and he will tread out the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. We're talking about the participants here. The participants in this battle, the beast, the participants in this battle, his armies, the generals, and Jesus. Now there's another group, right? The text tells us there's another group that's with Jesus. They really don't have much to do, but they're coming. 
It says, I saw the heavens open. It explains who he was. And verse 14 says, The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. There's another group. The bride, the army of God. Let's get to the battle, though. Let's get to the battle. Anybody here like to watch war movies? I'm probably looking around them thinking about guys like war movies, right? Do you like a lot of dialogue in war movies? Yeah. I'm going like to fast forward. And let's, get to the, let's get to the fight. Let's get to the fight, right? Can you imagine tuning into the fight last night and Tyson talked for 20 minutes and then Roy Jones Jr. talked for 20 minutes and you're like, no, 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 guys, let's get to the fight. Well, let's get to the fight. The battle and the results. We come to the battle of all battles. This is it. The battle of all battles. Man versus God. Idol versus deity. Us versus him. If this were a Marvel movie, Thanos versus humanity. The Lamb will be billed as the destroyer of the world, and they must unite to fight against him, mano y mano. And the world will gather on a specific plane. And that plane will be called Armageddon. The plane of Megiddo. The plane of Jehoshaphat. And notice from the text. Let's look from verse 19. Put your finger right there. Oh wait. Got your finger on verse 19? Okay, here we go. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So we've already determined who that is. That's Jesus on the horse, his army. That's his church. That's the Old Testament saints. That's the tribulation saints. That's his angels coming behind all of that. And the beast was captured. Hmm. Not much there. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. And the two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Not much about the battle here, right? They gathered. The beast and the false prophet were captured. It was a pretty simple battle. Now, (laughs) there's more to this battle. And I want to just share a little bit about that with you. But the battle was pretty simple. Jesus shows up, walks up to the beast and the Antichrist, and takes them captive. The beast is captured along with his puppet. Victory, victory in Jesus. But God has given us the book of Zechariah for a reason. And so I want to tell you five things that happen in that moment when Jesus breaks the heavens and comes down. From not only this chapter, but also in in Revelation uh, chapter 1, and then also in uh, Zechariah chapter 14. So take your Bibles, please, and turn to Zechariah 14. Now listen, that's, uh, that's, um, I'm going to tell you what page it is on my Bible. It's probably not the same for you. Page 967, and it's um, about two-thirds of the way, okay? And um, it's probably one of the clean pages in your Bible that you, you've not really read very much. But you should. You should. Zechariah 14. The title of chapter 14 is The Coming of the Day of the Lord. 
It's a great, great chapter. The prophet Zechariah prophesied about this last uh, battle in the last chapter of his book. Verse 1 said, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoils taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Remember we talked about that. The kings of the north, the kings of the south, the kings of the east. God has dried up the Euphrates and they're all coming against Jerusalem. Now keep reading. It looks horrible what's going on. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile while the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Now verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as He fights on the day of battle. Verse 4. On that day His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem and on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other southward. Look at the end of verse 5. Then the Lord my God will come with all the holy ones with him. Who are those? Do like this. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's you. Did you know you were in the book of Zechariah? You're in the book of Zechariah if you're a follower of Jesus. And on that day there will be no light, cold, or frost. And there should be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, evening time there shall be at evening time there shall be light. All right, so here's a couple things that happened, right? The nations have come up against Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been captive. The Lord will descend and put his foot on the Mount of Olives. That's the first thing that will happen on this day. That Mount of Olives will split. We just read it from the scripture. It will turn into two mounts with a great valley in between it. The second thing that happens, the Lord will come with his holy ones. And this will be a horrific sight. It will be an earth-shaking sight. The Lord will appear in His majestic glory, radiant and bright. And keep your finger there. Revelation chapter 1 says that every eye, this is the third thing will happen, every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and they will all mourn. All right, so you following me here? In this battle, here's what happens. Jesus appears, steps on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives splits, great earthquake. He appears with His army, and everyone sees Him. And everyone mourns. We're done. We're done. And then notice verse 19, uh, chapter 19, where we're at, the beast was captured and the false prophet. They were thrown into the lake of fire, alive. And then the last thing that happens, verse 21 of chapter 19 says that the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Was it a real sword that came out of his mouth? I don't think so. Because the word of God is the sword. Hebrews says that the word of God is something that pierces to bone and marrow, to the soul and the depths of your heart. And the mouth that created now is the mouth that judges. But we get an interesting view from Zechariah 14, verses 12 and 13, that what this will look like. And this shall be, verse 12 says this, and this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Are you ready for it? Their flesh will rot while they're still standing on their feet. 
<laughs> but it goes on. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouth. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord will fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of another. So the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ will cause them to be so frightened that they begin to fight each other. And when he speaks, it's total Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know when they opened up the ark at the end and they're like melting away? That's a pretty gruesome sight. And then of course, Revelation says the birds, the birds just eat until they're full. It's a five-move checkmate. The heavens open, Jesus steps on the Mount of Olives, the earthquakes, the bride and the saints are there, the Antichrist is captured and thrown alive into the lake of fire, which is hell. And then Jesus turns to those who have spent seven years rebelling against him. Those who took the mark of the beast. Those who worshipped his idol. And from his mouth he strikes the nations. Jesus, the word of God who creates now, deals and judges with those who have rejected him. And it's a powerful defeat of the enemy. And that word spoken by him, evil men melt. Literally. Before him. No unregenerate, unglorified man can look on God and live. The beast and the Antichrist are cast into hell, which was created for Satan and his angels. These are taken to Hades, the resting place of the unlawful dead, waiting the great white throne judgment. It is instant, it is awful, it is painful. And ultimately, they will be judged by Jesus Christ and cast like their leaders into hell. What's the result of the battle? Behold the Lamb. We spent a whole year talking about that one thing. Behold the Lamb, the champion of justice, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of the world. And listen, what we can rest in, the fulfiller of his promises. When he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Could you do that? Could you make people, by just your simple mouth, make people melt away? Could you deal with evil? Not like that. That's our text. Now the question is, what do we do with it? Remember I said, I began just telling you how many passages of Scripture actually talk about this day. And there's one in 2 Peter that also goes with this, verse uh, chapter 3. And, um, and I want to read that passage for you because I think it's important for us to get an idea of what are we supposed to be doing in the meantime. Obviously, this is a great victory for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm a follower of him, so what should I be doing, Nate? How do I celebrate this? How do I... How do I place further faith in him because of this? Well, going along with this passage is 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 13 says this. He's been talking about the great day of the Lord. He's been talking about the millennial kingdom. He's been talking about what happens after that. And now he says, but according to his promises, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, now we know it's there for a reason. So he's about to tell us what we're going to do with this information. Therefore, beloved, since you've been waiting for these, 
Be diligent to be found in Him, without spot or blemish, and at peace. Therefore, verse 17, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own sensibility, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever and to the day of eternity. Amen. There are five things that we should be doing right now. All right, are you ready for them? Well, let me just ask the question first, though. Who wants to be ready when he returns for his bride? Anyone here want to be ready? Uplifted hand. If you want to be ready and you're following along on on the chat, just write amen in there. Well, here's what you need to do. You need to diligently be found in him. Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Believer, are you diligently being found in him? If you're here without Jesus, be found in him. Remember we said last week the third step in a bride uh, coming to, into a family was to say yes. Maybe your job today is to say yes to Jesus. Be diligently found in him. Secondly, be diligently uh, found to be without spot or blemish. What's that mean? Well, you know, your sin is a blemish in your life. But we know that 1 John 1.9 says if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a daily duty. Are we, we should be repenters, right? My friend Christy Colleen had a church in Moldova and the name of the church was Metanoia or the repenters. He wanted his church to be known that they got that issue in spot and blemish taken care of. They were, they were quick to repent of the sins that caused those blemishes against the king who was returning. Thirdly, it says in the text, be diligent to be at peace. It says, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, Christians, are you at peace? My dad said something to me really interesting yesterday when he was over at the house. We had, we had a bunch of people in from all over, uh, his, our family, my family, his family. And um, it was just nice. It was a good time. You know, it was time for everybody to go, but it was a good time. Right? And he said at the end, but he's getting ready to go, and he's like, it's just really nice that we can just kind of gather in peace. And, th- and that was like almost like 97% true. Right? I mean, because we're brothers and we're sisters and we, we fight because that's what we do. Right? But we're really at peace. But not every family is. Not even in the family of God. We argue about all the wrong things. We argue about cloth that we have to put on our face, about government policies. I'm attached to the king of kings. I need to be diligent about that. And I need to be at peace with each one of you as we need to be at peace with each other until the Lord returns. And the scripture says they will know that we are followers of Jesus by our love for one another. Number four, be diligent to take care that you are not carried away by the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. One of the marks of a time in our life is that, you know what? We just follow stupid things that have nothing to do with the church. Lawless men who make up things and we just follow it like it's happening. Be careful. 
Weigh it in measure. Even Paul was, was corrected by the Bereans and he called them worthy because they searched the Scriptures. And then number five, be diligent to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's quite a list. That's quite an accomplishment that we should be doing. But you know what? Here's the thing. Listen. Look up here. I want to challenge you. I want you to be ready when the heavens open and he ascends in the cloud to take back his bride. I want you to be ready. I want you to be, let's go. I don't want you to be like, uh, could you hold on? Jesus, could you hold on just a minute? I got I to gotta do a couple more things. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. I, uh, I read a story this week in the closing part of the chapter um, in this book called The Book of Signs. It's fantastic. If you want to just get to know some more stuff about prophecy and end times, Dr. Jeremiah's book, The Book of Signs, is, is just really fantastic. But um, I read a story about this ship that I have on the screen here, uh, The Endurance, The Endurance and its captain. And maybe you've heard about the captain. Maybe you've heard about this, this trip. Ernest Shackelford, Sir Ernest Shackelford, took 29 men to Antarctica the day that war broke out between Germany and France in 1914. And they were going to be the first human beings to walk across Antarctica. What a task, right? But he, his, his bill of sale to his people were like, you may not return, but if you do, you're going to be honored for all of your life. This is a dangerous mission. I hope we're going to make it. And yet he got 29 men to get on this ship and go to Antarctica. The problem was the ship got stuck. You see it. It's stuck right there. This is an actual picture. It got stuck right there. And for a year they lived on that ship waiting for someone to rescue them. But he would keep the men active and he would keep the men captivated. He would make them warm milk in the morning and he would, he, they would play ice soccer and, and other games, dog races, while they tried to survive. Finally, he decided that the ice that they were stuck on, it was beginning to separate from the rest of the... It was thinning out, but the ship was sinking at the same time, so they decided they needed to take the three lifeboats and go to Elephant Island, which was close by. It took them about four hours to row to Elephant Island. And he decided, after dropping off his men, he took five men to row to a different island where he knew life was. It took him several weeks to get there. To land, to find out the inhabitants were on the other side of the island. It took him 36 hours to walk to the other side of the island, to find life, to get somebody ready. And after several months, he was finally able to come back with a ship to rescue his crew. But what happened in the meantime was that Frank Wilde, Frank Wilde was the second in command. And while the captain was away, not knowing when he would return, every day he would say to the men, the captain's coming back today, the captain's coming back today. Make your bed, roll up your sleeping bag, the captain's coming back today. We need to be ready. We need to be ready. And when the captain finally did return, it took them less than an hour to get 20 four men and all of their provisions off of the beach and onto the Chilean icebreaker. 
And Captain Shackelford looked at Officer Wilde and he's like, how is this possible? And he said, every day, we thought you were coming and we were ready. We were ready. And in fact, we even saved the last bit of kerosene and a little bit of firewood so that if we needed to, we could signal you. Now, I read that, and I was just struck. We know that God wins, right? We've seen it in the text. We even see in great detail what it looks like. But are we being diligent at being ready for his return that could be at any moment? If you had to rate yourself right now, how ready are you for the Lord to return? Are you thinking maybe, maybe, maybe just a little bit longer, God? Maybe No, I'm ready, right? Even so, come Lord Jesus. Do you have your things packed and ready to go? Do you wake up every morning saying, maybe today, maybe today? Not grumbling, but with a smile on your face. Maybe today. Maybe today. The invitations. It's the invitation to the battle. It's the invitation to the feast. It's the invitation to see the King of kings and Lord of lords at the second coming. My challenge for you today is to be diligent, to be ready for his first coming. That rapture of the church that calls you home to be with him. Are you ready? I pray that you are. Listen, I'm here to tell you, if you're without Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, one day he will be crowned King of kings and Lord of lords and judge all those who didn't believe in him. But you could settle that account today. The scripture says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you would be saved. That is a term that we use for those who are followers of Jesus. Saved from what? Saved from death. Jesus defeated death on the cross. The wage of your sin was death. But the gift of God, according to Romans, is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is our King. That is the one on the white horse who comes in mighty power to judge the world. But you, if you were to come to him today in faith believing, you could come and have your sins judged on the cross rather than that fateful day. Would you do that? He's calling. He's asking. Scripture says, all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. I pray that today would be your day. Father in heaven, we just come before you in, in, in awe of how you deal with end things. You wrap it all up neatly. We don't have to wonder. We, we just are in awe of, of you. Uh, dear Jesus, we see your power in this moment. A word spoken and, and life melts away. You judge fairly. You desire that no man should, should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of truth, but yet many have rejected you, God. And Jesus, you come to set up your kingdom. You come in power to rule and to reign. 
So, Father, we pray that, that even in this moment right now, there would be conviction in the hearts of us that we would be ready, that we would ready ourselves for the coming day, that every day we would look with excitement towards the heavens, wondering if today is the day you would call us home. Lord, we know that according to your word, there's nothing else that has to happen in, in human history before you have to come back. We're just waiting for that day. And, and one day, I know you will look at the Father and say, it's time. And one day he will say, yes, and go. And I pray that it will be soon. I pray that it will be soon. But Lord, if there's anyone here today who's not placed their faith and their trust in you for salvation, Father, I ask that you would save them in this moment, that you would draw them by your Holy Spirit to the beauty of who Jesus is and all that he's done in, in, in climbing up on that cross and, and taking on the sin for those that would believe. The, paying the punishment that was rightly, rightfully deserved by us, which was death. Our wage was death. Our, our sin caused us to be at odds with you and yet you beautifully provided God, would you open their eyes to see that they're a sinner in need of a Savior? God, would you open their eyes to see that you are that Savior through Jesus Christ? And Lord, would they just cry out to you to save them, to forgive them of their sins, to cleanse them from all their unrighteousness? Lord, would they do that now? Father, we pray that, that you would be glorified. Jesus, we, we sing this closing song lifting up who you are. All hail King Jesus. All hail the Savior of the world. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio, check out our website at harvestcambridge.org or like us on Facebook at Harvest Cambridge. You are loved.